Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, y'all. Ryan Sprague here. As you all know, the Somewhere in the Skies podcast is always free to consume, but it isn't free to create. That's why I've started the Somewhere in the Skies Patreon campaign. On a monthly basis, you give what you think the show is worth. You'll be helping the show continue, grow, and to be something truly communal. And remember, there are rewards for each level of contribution, and the list is only growing. So please, help Somewhere in the Skies now by becoming a patron. To contribute and to learn more, visit www.patreon.com backslash somewhere skies. Thank you for your support. And now, on with the show. Welcome to a very special episode of Somewhere in the Skies. I'm your on-site correspondent, Earl Gray Anderson, and I'm coming to you live from the 2019 MUFON Symposium. This is Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Sprague. Welcome to Somewhere in the Skies, and you heard that right, this is a very special episode of the show. I wasn't able to make it to Los Angeles for the 50th anniversary MUFON Symposium, but I was very fortunate to have longtime listener Earl Gray Anderson be our on-site Somewhere in the Skies correspondent. Earl is not only a chief MUFON field investigator, but also the assistant state director for Southern California and a member of MUFON's Experiencer research team. I asked Earl to grab a couple interviews while he wasn't busy being interviewed himself, and he more than pulled through. On this episode, you'll hear from many of the speakers at the event, including Paul Hynek, Greg Bishop, Dr. Irina Scott, Dr. Michael Masters, Dr. Lynn Katai, Dr. George Medic, Kathleen Martin, Paul Davids, Denise Stoner, and Tom Whitmore. Whew! That is a long list, but I cannot wait for you to hear from all of these people. It was absolutely fascinating. And it never would have happened without Earl's dedication to getting the info out about UFOs to the public. We're going to have Earl on in the very near future to talk all about some of the incredible cases he's investigated with MUFON, both in the past and a few he's currently working on. But in the meantime, sit back and enjoy your front row seat to the 50th anniversary MUFON Symposium. <laughs> this is this is Earl Gray Anderson. Uh, I, I'm talking to uh, Greg Bishop here, who's uh, at the, he's not speaking at the symposium. He's just kind of hanging out. But uh, I love Radio Mysterioso and uh, have loved his writing. And uh, anyway, how are, you, how are you doing there, Greg? 
I'm doing good. We're not actually at the MUFON meeting. We're at a nice place right near it. Exactly. We had lunch. <laughs> yeah. We got Irene. Irena Scott's here with us. Hello. We're, there she is again. <laughs> so what are you, what are you working on uh, right now? I'm trying to uh, write a book on my co-creation stuff about uh, how, how much the witness contributes to a, a strange experience. Hmm. Could you, could you kind of go into that a little bit? I'm interested. I, I'm... My idea is that when somebody sees something, where most people that come and talk to them are worried about, you know, what did it look like? How big was it? Where did it come? You know, what direction did it go? All these things. And my idea is um, we kind of have to understand how people perceive, remember, tell stories about all these things, stuff about our physiology and our psychology before we can say that they're giving us an accurate representation of what they saw and the you know it might be a case of we can never get an accurate representation in a way that you would figure a scientist would have a camera on something or a recording of something the recording device is the human mind and physiology and if we don't we don't know how that works or don't consider it then we're dealing with um i don't know about faulty data but we're dealing with with data that uh cannot be categorized the way that we'd want it to be. Hmm. So you don't think that the human is a perfect recording device? Oh, gonna... it's not at all. We know that for <laughs> sure. I mean, well, yeah. that's why there's different witnesses and trials. I mean, uh, yeah. that's why, um, you know, witness testimony is uh, is not airtight. It, ne- it never is. You have different witnesses seeing different things. And that's just from, re- from mundane things that we know about, like robberies and things. Yeah. You start talking about something that people have no reference for. Then it becomes extremely strange and a lot less uh, exact, and we have to deal with that. And people think that, you know, we're going to talk to this witness and find this out and put this in the database, and it's like, well, one, you know, you're forcing them into speaking in a way that you want to hear it and not the way that they want to describe it. And two, you've already predetermined what's going to go in that database. I mean, uh, Mm. you can't take a database from um, APRO, MUFON, KUFOs, and that, well, not to mention, you know, other countries, that would be even more insane. And put these databases together because they're all different. They're all talking about different, or they're referring to the same thing, maybe, in different ways. Mm. And so all this has to be taken into account. You can't just say, look, here we have a database and this is what it means. No, it's, uh, everything's going through our filters. And it's Sort of uh, like the monks describing an elephant, the blind monks trying to describe an elephant. They're all kind of... Yeah, kind of. Part of it. Yeah, exactly. They're maybe mistaking a part of something greater for the whole. Yeah, Yeah. and there's there's so many assumptions made, you know, and so I just, I want to try to, at least for myself, do away with with assumptions and then write about it and see what other people think. Do you have a title for the book yet? I don't know. I guess it's just called the co-creation hypothesis. Co-creation. I shouldn't even be talking about it because it makes me less likely to do it. <laughs> no, you know that? bug yeah, you, you yeah. know, because <laughs> I want to read that. That's well, it's got a due date, so I, I okay. Um, there you so go. I hope I make the due date, but I doubt I will. Yeah. Anyway, that's what I'm working on. And fantastic. And you're going to be starting up uh, Radio Mysterioso again. Uh, your shows you were, you were saying earlier. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've got a bunch of people lined up. Wonderful. Um, I just said they would do it, so I would, you know, I, I just have to follow through on it. I just found an artist in New Zealand who's fascinating to me, and I'm going to try to get him on the show. He does paintings of people, of witnesses, but they don't look like what the witnesses look like. Like he has a drawing of Paul Benowitz. It doesn't look like Paul Benowitz in the least. 
but it looks like somebody who would have, would have been through what Paul Benowitz went through. Wow. So that, to me, huh. is, you know, to me that actually works into areas of, of witness testimony and all that because he's interpreting something that we already kind of know, but he's putting it through his lens. But we know, you know, we can see, you know, he gives it a title and you go, yeah, I can see that. There's a painting, what is it? There's a painting of Ingo Swan re, uh, remote viewing the far side of the moon. It doesn't look anything like Ingo Swan, <laughs> but it looks like somebody who's remote viewing the far side of the moon. Well, I want to see that. Yeah. I, I love Ingo Swan, yeah. by the way. I, the, the penetration, what a wonderful book. Yeah. Amazing book. Uh, we were talking earlier, you, you, you recently met Jacques Vallée. We were talking with him over at Contact in the Desert. What do you guys talk about? Um, I saw him after... The, the the film uh, Witness of Another World and I just uh, I asked him you know I asked him about the film basically mm. um, it's a film about a guy a witness in Argentina that had a sighting uh, close encounter when he was 12 years old and it basically messed up his life his, he became estranged from his family the people in his town wouldn't talk to him anymore the filmmaker meets him he's living, living out in the middle of nowhere in Argentina by himself because and having nightmares every night about what happened to him, um, the filmmaker came out, talked to him, and the upshot was he reintegrated with his. He got back together with his family, reintegrated with the people in his in his in his town there, and actually kind of fixed his life. And you know the the what Valet said was he said this stuff with disclosure and the government and getting things out of the government that's not the phenomenon he says this is the phenomenon what happened to this guy and how he reintegrated himself and how he was able to come to terms with what happened to him that's what we should be worried about not you know who's releasing what file or whatever and i tend to agree with it that's fascinating i love that well thank you so much for talking with us, Greg, and, and I'm looking forward to your new book, and it's just a pleasure getting to hang out with you. Thank you, today. sure. And having lunch. Yeah. We, we, we had we had hamburgers over at the, well, a, a local hamburger joint here, but of course, Dr. Irina got, she, she sat there and drank a big old vanilla milkshake. <laughs> it was delicious. Was it? <laughs> I think it was the, the $5 milkshake from Pulp Fiction, you know. But, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the normal price for a milkshake, apparently, now. But, I of think course, so. That even economy. seems cheap for Los Angeles. Yeah, it does. Yep. Yep. All right. Well, thanks so much. I'm interviewing uh, Irina Scott, Dr. Irina Scott, who is one of the keynote speakers. Um, hello there, Irina. Well, hello. How are you? Doing pretty good. <laughs> Doing pretty well. Um, how, how, have, how have you enjoyed the symposium so far? Have you kept busy? And- yeah, I've been very busy, and it's been very interesting. I met all kinds of people. You're, you're selling your uh, new book, uh, Sacred Corridors, aren't you? Yes, I am. Wonderful, wonderful book. Um, tell us a little bit about what you'll be talking about tomorrow when you give your uh, keynote uh, speech. What I'll be talking about is a UFO sighting that my sister and I had in Boston, Massachusetts. It was a long, complex sighting. Hmm. Could you tell us maybe just the, the condensed version, perhaps? Yes, yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to condense it quite a bit. Uh, we were on. We were both at, at living on the east side of the country, and we decided to go on a vacation and see the eastern states and the um, the um, New England states. And so I was working in Washington D.C. in the DIA, and she was taking postgraduate work <clears throat> at Drew University. 
in Madison, New Jersey, which is close to New York. And I took some co-workers and drove up and picked her up, and we were going to stay in Boston that night. But it wasn't dark when we got there, and so we drove on up to, to New Hampshire and drove back. And then we were leaving Boston because we couldn't find a motel. And so we were driving west, and we could there was this airport south of us, and we could see airplanes come out, and they were coming to the east and landing, going west and landing. We could see their regular airplane lights, like their strobe lights and their red and green lights, blinking lights on their wings and everything. And there was one other light, and it wasn't anything like an airplane. It was, um, it was just a white, blinking light, nothing like a strobe light. And my sister kept saying, this is odd. Maybe it's a UFO. And I kept saying, you're crazy. I kept saying, you know. It's a helicopter blinking its landing lights off and on. It wasn't anything I'd ever seen before, and I've never seen a helicopter doing that. But I was, you know, in science, and I was being a skeptic, and so, you know, I told her that's what it was. And so we were arguing, and we both confessed to each other that we'd seen UFOs, which isn't something you can talk about back in those days. Hmm. What year was this? It was 1968. Oh. And so we were arguing... And I was driving south, and I saw this sphere along the road in a woods. And it was transparent. You could see through it. And it had a light on the inside. And the light was going through a spectrum of, like, all shades of blue and all shades of red and all shades of blue again. And it had a sort of dark band that was rotating around it. And I had no idea what it was. And it was while we were seeing this other thing. And then the inside of the tar- car turned green. Was it like a green light that flooded your car? or It's just like the inside of the car was green. It wasn't... I looked all over, and I couldn't see it coming from any place. And I looked at the sphere, and it wasn't coming from that. I couldn't see green. I couldn't oh. see green any place. So no source of the... Yeah, I couldn't find any source at all. Wow. And, you know, you look around, and you think, well, it has to have a source. And you think... Maybe it's a laser, but they didn't have lasers back in those days, mm. you know, that people were using. And so then it stopped, and we continued arguing. And then she started screaming at me and said to stop because it was going to cross over the road. And I wasn't watching it that close. And so anyway, she, I pulled over because she was just screeching, turn, stop, stop, stop. And so I pointed my hand out the window. And I was going to say, dingbat, that's a helicopter. <laughs> and way off I saw a meteor. And then just immediately this thing came over the road. Hmm. And it had seven windows that were just really, really, really brightly lit. And a light on one end and a light on the other. It went perpendicular to our line of sight. Well, we'd seen all kinds of blimps with lighted sides and things. And knew what they were and everything. And so we said, does this have, are we looking at panels? And no, we both thought we were looking toward the inside of it. Hmm. You could see the inside. And we'd seen lots of blimps by freeways because our farm had a freeway through it and blimps followed the freeway, so we were familiar Uh with it. And anyway, so then um, it was going through this pattern of blinking its lights. I, you know, I changed my mind and realized she was right and I was wrong. And so... 
I could take a perfect picture of it. It was right there, seven windows. I could get it real clear, just like you're standing in your yard looking at the windows. And, I mean, there wasn't any fogginess, and we weren't fogging mentally. We were just our normal selves. And we were questioning each other all the time. Do you see this? Do you hear that? You know, it was soundless. And so I thought I could take... I had high-speed film in the camera, in the car, and a camera. And so I was experienced taking. I was actually, you know, working in photography. And so I thought I would take just a miracle picture of a UFO. It's inside. And then if I can take maybe one or two and get a background, I might, you know, almost prove UFO exists. And so I was just thrilled the pieces out of my mind. And this truck driver stopped just about the time I got my camera loaded and came up. And this thing was in sight. And he asked what we were doing. Well, you don't take up a strange man and say weird things at night, you know. Um, Dateline wasn't on back then and stuff, but you knew to avoid men at night. And so we didn't say UFO or anything. We just pointed. There was an airport there, and like we were identifying an airplane and expecting him to see it. Um, And so he he just rotated around in the opposite direction, looked up. So he was just exactly looking opposite to where it was and said, I don't see anything. And... You know, I mean, like if he was looking at it and said, I don't see anything, that would be one thing. But he looked in the other direction. And then he rotated back around and looked at me. And I knew I was in trouble here. Wow. <laughs> and I was just dying to get this picture, too, of the thing. And then he asked again, just real sincere. And we pointed again. And he rotated around, looked in the opposite direction, and said, I don't see anything. Then he rotated back and pointed to his head like the insane and we didn't say ufo or anything to him we were just acting normal Mm -hmm. and so he went back to his truck and watched us and i had missed the picture and apparently the object had moved had just appeared someplace else while i was talking to him and i didn't notice it at all until i read my sister's write-up years and years and years later for some reason i guess i was concentrating on a film or something and so by that time it was farther away, and I was—I had high-speed film, and I was afraid the freeway, I might get lens flares. So there was a um, hill there with the trees around it. So I ran up the hill. The top was bald, and I took pictures, and I was used to taking pictures with that. I could take pictures of time exposures of stars and uh, planes sometimes and things. And came back, and it started circling the airport, and it was going through this weird circle where it would go from south to north slowly. It would blink its lights on in two different places. Could you still see the windows at this point? No. I mean, when I had seen the windows, and then when I stopped talking to the truck driver, it was so far away, there was no resolution for the windows. It was just one spot. And so I was just taking a picture of just a streak. I mean, that's what I thought it was. And so then um, it started circling the airport and in the north to south half circle it would just be north and it was south and just kind of remember it went in a half circle it was so fast you couldn't believe it you couldn't see it and so anyway it was a little bit north of us and I was just dying to get a picture Uh, you know I wanted to get that picture again and so I thought it may start going north even though it had been going south and so I was going to 
turned my car around the next intersection on the freeway. And I got on, and that truck driver, that crazy, insane thing, just got right behind me, blazed his bright lights into my mirror, and blinded me. Mm. And I couldn't see. And I tried everything to get rid of him, changing lanes and everything. He just stayed there. And finally, I just speeded up as fast as I could, thinking I'd get away from him, and I couldn't. So then I was going to go along the left-hand side of the road and then just when I came to an intersection just suddenly swerve off and they thought he wouldn't know that but you know if somebody was coming faster on the right-hand lane we'd be in serious trouble and I asked my sister look behind she said she couldn't see anything and I couldn't see because I was blinded but anyway that's what I did and we survived I mean, wow. I said goodbye to her and everything right before that. Do you I, think that that was the Men in Black or something similar that was? Well, I want I trying to stop at you. At first, from I thought it was something normal, and I don't now because, you know, if you point at something and say, "Look there," you look in that direction. You don't look in the opposite direction. And he repeated that twice, which mm-hmm. made me think he had something to do with a UFO, because huh. it was like he was telling me something, or you know. If it had just been once, maybe, even though it's strange if you point, look at that, you don't look that way. Mm. And so I think he had something to do with the UFO. I don't know what. Mm. And he chased, he took chase after you guys. I mean, yeah. that's like the, the Steven Spielberg movie, The Duel, right? Yeah. Where the, that truck goes after that guy. Uh, and I, I know we've talked about this once before, uh, Irina, that, that the UFO that you saw it kind of had a resemblance to the, the UFO that Betty and Barney Hill saw, didn't it? It had the windows and the yeah, light it, on each side. Yeah, and that's an unusual shape for a UFO. Usually UFOs are flying saucer, flying saucer shaped and things like that. Yeah. But this had windows, and most people are familiar with the picture he drew of the UFO in his book and that was after he'd been hypnotized but uh, just two or three years ago Kathleen Martin published the sketch he made immediately after they saw it and that looked an awful lot like ours it even had seven windows just like we had wow. <laughs> with the lights on the outside and things that's an amazing sighting Irina well I'm looking forward to hearing your presentation tomorrow and, and thank you so much for recounting your experience uh, for us. And well, thank you. <laughs> it's my pleasure. And your new book is called Sacred Corridors. You can get that through Amazon and, yes. and the usual uh, uh-huh. places. So, uh, all right. Thank you so much, Dr. Scott. And uh, we'll, we'll see you tomorrow when you give your presentation. Well, thank you. It's an honor to be interviewed by a top UFO investigator. Oh, thank you so much. (laughs) I am talking with Dr. Michael Masters, who I just caught on a wonderful panel. How how are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. So how have you enjoyed the the symposium so far? I've enjoyed it very much. Yeah, it's been uh, a lot of great speakers, a lot of great panels and events, activities. Mm -hmm. So it's been, uh, it's my first MUFON conference. So I've really enjoyed getting to know everybody and and meeting some great people. Great. I mean, I enjoyed uh, hearing you on the panel that you were just on. Yeah, that was a a fun one. A lot of great questions from the audience and insightful answers from the panel and and you're kind of a us from the future theorist yeah. as far as the phenomena. Where, how did where how did you wind up uh, arriving at, at that conclusion? Well, I was actually really young, and um, 
I looked up on the living room bookshelf and saw Whitley Strieber's book Communion. And uh, when I did, I kind of had this this image appear in my head of a an early hominin, chimpanzee-like creature, modern human, and then this alien form. And um, just spent the rest of my life investigating whether there could be a phylogenetic connection. And the more I delved into it, the obviously aware of my own biases in doing so, but. The more I looked into it, the more I found that it, it helps explain a lot of the strange aspects of this phenomenon. Hmm. I think it's a fascinating way of looking at the at the phenomenon. I mean, you know, I mean, honestly, anybody that says it's all this or it yeah, has to, absolutely, yeah, right. you know, and, and and I'm always really interested. And I guess Jacques Vallée was kind of the first guy that postulated. Yeah, since, I love Jock. I yeah, mean, he's one of my since favorite. publishing the book, I've found so many individuals. I was fortunate to learn of Jim Penniston's encounter right before I finished the book, so I added that in because it's a another sort of form of corroboration that comes from a very different place than my own research. So I was able to put that in, but since publishing, I've I've come across so many other people and so many works, wow. both of fiction, nonfiction, science fiction. And what's the title of your new book? It's Identified Flying Objects, a multidisciplinary scientific approach to the UFO phenomenon. And and as you mentioned, you know, nobody has all the answers. I ended my talk last night by pointing that out. But all I'm trying to do is combine research from physics, astronomy, anthropology, and astrobiology to build a case around uh, what I refer to as an extratempestrial model, that they are indeed us from the future. I mean, I've of, uh, often thought, I mean, would we even recognize ourselves in the future, you know? Uh, right. I, I, th- I think there was a study done where uh, they said that if people had evolved long enough in, in zero-G environment, that they would look an awful lot like the greys. Low-light yeah. environment, you're going to grow huge, you know, darker eyes right. and have better light-gathering power. Yeah, even without... Yeah. Uh, thinking about what might happen between now and then just looking at the the physical changes that characterize hominin evolution up to this point an increase in brain size eye size presumably uh reduction in our face uh, a reduction and retraction of our lower facial and mid facial anatomy if those continued into the future you would expect to get that that quintessential alien form just as a result of the the continuation of six million year trends in our own evolutionary past. So, yeah, there's certainly environmental factors that could contribute, but even just looking at our evolutionary history forward into the future, you might expect to see something like a gray alien or a Nordic <laughs> or a, an East, with the East Asian characteristics. So, Wow. Uh, just a fascinate, fascinating uh, subject, and, uh, and thank you so much, uh, Dr. Masters. I appreciate you taking the time to... Yeah. Uh, just speak a little bit with us and uh absolutely yeah you know good speed and keep on keeping on thank you appreciate that. all right take care thank you so much all right thank you i have the honor here of talking with dr lynn katai uh, how are you doing there, Lynn? I am just superb and uh, stellar, actually. Stellar <laughs> is really a fun wonderful description. Yeah, we're and so excited to finally present a youth program today. That's And you're doing that today, this we afternoon. Are. We are. I have produced a, a graphic novel activities coloring book for all ages. And uh, we're just starting to really get out to, to that 
the youth community who thirst for this knowledge. There's nothing, nothing in our history books. So it's really important that we address and raise awareness of what's going on. And now they're so curious, too, because we're talking about the, the moon landing so much on TV and the Space Force and so forth. And they're curious. And many have seen things. Yes. And they want to know what's going on. Yes. And there really isn't anything out there. So we want to make sure that we uh, fill that little gap and, uh, and help them learn and grow and decide for themselves. That's wonderful. Just, and, and, you know, I saw that you were doing the, the, the family-oriented youth, you know, directed at the kids uh, presentation. And I just thought that was just such a wonderful idea. I mean, I, I have uh, – my kids are all grown up, but I've, of course, got the grandkids now. Exactly. And uh, just for everybody out there, I, I just got a copy of, of uh, Lynn's graphic novel for my grandson, <laughs> who's going to love it. Oh, He's yeah. very, very interested in the phenomenon, and, and uh, they're growing up in a different age. Oh, you it know? is, and it's packed with information. I tried to really get something out there. It's very unique because not only do we address the Phoenix Lights, the adventures of Sue F.O., Field Observer, and Hugh, H-U-G-H, Hugh F.O. <laughs> and we have a Disney Illustrator. We've been doing uh, pilot programs in schools. The kids have given us feedback. We have 80 crop circles. We have uh, word finders and mazes and crossword puzzles and uh, iconic pictures that, um, you know, these kids have never see these. And it's important for adults as well. Um, so everything is in one little volume uh, in the graphic novel. It's it's a beautifully just just beautifully produced book and and uh, you know, you know it's like my grandson his his first uh, the first thing that was UFO oriented that he ever saw was uh, you know light uh, uh, light in the sky was that you know the Travis Walton oh, right. movie oh, geez. and of course which is really scary right. and that was one of the reasons I came forward by the way to allay people's fears because the Phoenix Lights there has been one it's important for people to know not one report credible report of harm, threat, or abduction in over 22 years. If anything, it was just the opposite. People were in awe and wonder, curious. To this day, I still have people telling me that they felt blessed to have seen the Phoenix Lights phenomena. And there's so much more to the story. There's so much myth and disinformation out there. I wanted to set the record straight. So... You know, it's yeah. like Governor, uh, uh, Governor Simonton, uh, you know, eventually, you know, he, he originally, you know, went after Phoenix Lights and tried to, you know, treat it like it was some prosaic event. But even he came forward and uh, said that uh, that it was a, a spaceship, that it was a well, mile across. Otherworldly. And that's other really world. significant because um, it's, it's amazing that... There are other countries worldwide, once you start looking into this, that are much more open to these phenomena as being otherworldly or uh, not, not from Earth. Um, the, the, and they're, you know, it's about time the United States got this out in the open, addressed it, accepted it, and studied it so yes. we can find out who's driving these things as well as move forward in our own evolution. And now, you know, just a little part of that is the Phoenix Lights book, the documentary, and now we have the graphic novel uh, activities coloring book so people can learn and grow and decide for themselves. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Kitai, and, and for taking the time to uh, talk with us about your presentation and your new project, and uh, I just wish you luck and blessings. Uh, My pleasure. Keep looking up. Thank you very much. 
And I have the illustrious Mr. Paul Hynek here with me. Uh, how are you doing, Paul? Excellent, Earl. Nice to be here. Uh, I'm not going to ask you how you're enjoying the, the symposium so far, because I just caught you walking in the door. <laughs> he just got his hotel room here, folks. But uh, what, what you're going to be speaking tonight, um, what, what are you going to be talking about uh, in your presentation? I'll be talking about um, uh, the family business for Hynex of UFOs and uh, growing up with that as part of the most natural part of my reality. Now, I got, we, we were lucky enough to have you as a guest speaker right. for Los Angeles MUFON about a month ago, and it, it was a fabulous presentation. Is it, you're you're going to be kind of giving the, the same sort of presentation. I, I, now, I mean, you had some really, I think my favorite part of your presentation were some of your anecdotes about you and your brother <coughs> kind of getting right. in trouble. <laughs> could, yeah. you, could you reiterate the little the, the one story about the nitroglycerin? I think that. Uh, oh sure, so that that came up in relation to the wonderful TV show Project Blue Book, for which my brother and Joel and I serve as consultants, and how there is a character named Joel in the TV show, and how that character really bears little resemblance to any of the five of us children, to the point where the real Joel Hynek one day concocted nitroglycerin in the basement of our house. The glycerin fell on the floor, scooped it up with something, put it back in, and it started bubbling over, and he thought it was going to explode. So he and his buddies ran out of his room in the basement, leaving my other brother and my mom and I blissfully unaware in the kitchen right above (laughs) that there was a potential nitroglycerin explosion about to happen. Did your dad run in there and save the day, kind of? Is it... No, my dad was off saving the day and saving the day in some far-off UFO exploit. Oh my goodness! Uh, what, what was your dad's favorite case that he had ever worked on? You know, I don't know if he had a favorite case, but I, I know that he liked the Lonnie Zamora case in Socorro, New Mexico, in mm. 1964, and I know he liked the Father Gill case in 1959 in Papua New Guinea. Uh, and I met Father Gill, and so that's my favorite case. But those are two that stand out. Yeah, I mean the Guild. I, what a wonderful case! Is uh, what? Do you think that that was ET or was it that us from the future? They saw. I mean, there was there was like interaction between uh, Father Gill and, and the crowd. Yeah, I mean it, it's 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 one thing to say that that's a very good case that seems to demonstrate, based on the multiplicity of witnesses and the credibility of Father Gill in particular, that something happened as to the provenance or source of the intelligence of the craft or crafts. Yeah, you got me. You're <laughs> a better knows? man than me, Earl. But it, it's, it's a good one. It's a good case. Uh, what do you think your dad would feel about uh, the state of ufology today? Do you think that he would be happy with it, or do you think he'd be disappointed that we haven't made further, uh, more progress in, in the field? Yeah, it's hard to say. You know, this is a phenomenon where... There always seems to be that that next lab result or that next breaking case or that next bit of disclosure right around the corner. And we're always just tantalizingly close to that next big development. So I, I, I think maybe since he's been gone for 30 years or so, he might come back and say, well, you guys still haven't fixed it yet? <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I 
you know, I, I'm guessing he would, he would probably have dichotomous feelings about it. But, of course, you know, it's like with the ATIP stuff and the, the Nimitz uh, yeah. release of information. I, I, I always think that your dad would probably be really very, very happy about yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, there, there's sort of an increasing tenor and seriousness of government pre-disclosures, perhaps, mm. uh, that are happening now. And one of the things I think about is, even if we had the sort of signal event of a UFO, of a saucer landing on the White House lawn, in this day of fake news and deep fake videos, that might not be enough. You know, you might have a significant percentage of the population who won't believe anything that they see. How about that? <laughs> so if you're, if you're the U.S. government and you've got Area 51 chock full of alien bodies and multi-pronged efforts to reverse engineer various alien technology propulsion systems and and you know the secret's going to get out and you have to disclose it as Richard Dolan have with, with, with claims then you now have to contend with maybe whatever you do won't be good enough which mm-hmm. is something that we really didn't have to think of even 10 years ago maybe that's why this information is being allowed out right now you know I mean that may have something to do with it sure um, you, you are you consider yourself a futurist. I know you're a, a fan of Ray Kurzweil's right. work. Um, what, when do you think the singularity is going to happen, and what do you think uh, it's going to entail? Do you think we're going to become our machines, our computers, or do you think it's going to have a positive effect on humanity in the long run? It, it'll happen early, early to to mid morning on May tenth, two thousand forty six. That's the best. <laughs> Uh, time range I can give you. I do believe it will happen. I do believe that the singularity, meaning the astrophysics term borrowed to artificial intelligence to mean the point at which artificial intelligence becomes self-aware and recursively self-improving, I do think it will happen. I don't think it will be an extinction-level event as we see in these rather dystopian visions like Mm. The Matrix and Terminator, etc. I do believe we'll merge with artificial intelligence. Um, the neural lace networks that Elon Musk and others are working on now are a big step in that direction where we'll, instead of having an appendage like you're holding the phone in your hand now, <laughs> we'll have these things built into us. You know, we have pacemakers and other things that we haven't sure. thought that sort of surrender part of our humanity, but a neural lace that can access the internet for which it goes right into your optic nerve, that's sort of plugging in. And then when we get to the point where a la Robert Freitas with respirocytes, where we replace the human heart, which is one of the big failure points in the body, with self-propelled synthetic red blood cells that deliver oxygen far more efficiently than our current red blood cells and do a multiplicity of other things en route in terms of diagnosis, diagnosis and breaking up plaque, etc. Um, th- a lot of people will think that that is sort of the the point of no return about giving up humanity because especially in Western culture we sort of equate the, the soul with the heart. Yeah. Well, maybe we've all encountered too many, you know, the old Frankenstein meme and, and maybe it's been bantered around enough. Yeah, right. What do you think of, you know, the, the, the disabled people that could be, uh, you know, could walk or blind that could see and uh, deaf that could hear? Uh, I mean, those are all very real and in and, and, and close proximity to us. I mean, it, this is going to happen and it's going to happen within our lifetimes, I believe, uh, maybe sooner than we think. 
So, uh, well, thank you so much, Paul. I appreciate uh, you talking with us. Uh, it was a pleasure and an honor, and uh, good luck tonight. I'll be there. Yes, and, and please talk to Ryan about the agreed-upon payment. Yes, the shirt. <laughs> That's behind, right. I, I'm, I'm working for the same, uh, the <laughs> same, the, the same uh, price myself. We, we want, we want the Heineck shirt. Extra know. large. <laughs> Me too. All right, Paul. I'll see you in a little bit. Pleasure, Earl. Thank you very much. Sure. They've been seen all over our planet, somewhere in the skies. I'm talking about flying saucers. Hey guys, Ryan Sprague here, and I'm excited to tell you about Saucer, your source for original and authentic ufology-inspired essentials and apparel, symbolizing self-enrichment. Elevate your craft at thesaucerbrand.com. Use promo code SKIES for 20% off your entire purchase. I've got their bomber jacket, their t-shirts, and their crew neck sweater. And I am rocking them like crazy here in New York City. People are starting to ask me about it, and they're even starting to look up into the skies. Saucer products are sustainably made in the USA with only the most comfortable fabrics known to man. Receive 20% off your entire purchase now when you use the code SKIES at thesaucerbrand.com. Show everyone that you believe and get your saucer gear now. That's thesaucerbrand.com. Keep looking somewhere in the skies and remember to elevate your craft. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm honored to be with Kathleen Martin. How are you doing, Kathleen? I'm doing well. It's busy here. We have a good crowd this year. You're always busy. <laughs> <laughs> I am sometimes too busy. <laughs> yes. We did, we did a, an experiencer workshop this morning, and I thought it was really a, a very wonderful, wonderful crowd. Uh, it, it's just... Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, this is, is the main gist of, of, or at least what you're best well-known for. But uh, what, what are you looking forward to with, with tomorrow? Now, tomorrow you've got a different... Today it was just pretty much talking about the the, the abduction and experiencer 
uh, phenomena itself, but tomorrow yes. you have a special uh, topic. And let me say more than that, uh, it gave experiencers who wanted to the opportunity to speak and have a supportive audience behind them, which is very, very helpful and therapeutic. Now, tomorrow, uh, it's going to be a little bit different. It's going to be a workshop on suggestions on what to do if you want contact to end. Hmm. What, what, just like a quick example of... I actually, I mean, it's a rhetorical question for me because I actually work with Kathleen here. But, <laughs> but, but uh, what, what are some of the methods that you use when somebody wants uh, alien contact to, to end? Well, first of all, I have to say that I can't guarantee that this is going to happen. Uh, in my new book, uh, Extraterrestrial Contact, What to Do When You've Been Abducted. There is one chapter that is entirely devoted to that topic. There's so much information in every chapter that it's uh, difficult for me just to s- sit here and list different things. But one of the very, very easy things that you can try is if you believe in a higher power, uh, you can call out to that higher power if, uh, if you don't. You can call out to the highest intelligence and say, in the name of the highest intelligence, I command you to leave this room now or leave wherever, wherever you are. Um, I have actually had uh, a recent discussion with a couple who were outside at night Uh, just sitting together in the mountains and this craft came down and they sensed that something was about to happen and he said do not take me I have children Wow! and the craft actually went away wow that's that's really interesting because you know I mean I'm always kind of under the impression that if they want you they're going to get you but that isn't always the case. That isn't. He had to to go home. You know he he couldn't take a couple of hours to spend yeah. with them. He had children in bed and they were just out for a walk. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they listened. You know it's interesting, Kathy. You know I I recently had a case where there was a similar scenario where. This gentleman was kind of given this cosmic tour, he said. and uh, But he had a little three-year-old daughter at home, and he told his entity, he said, Stop, I have to go back and take care of my child. I can't be away from her. And he, he said that he was returned. He was uh-huh. returned home. So, you know, apparently there definitely is something to this, and, uh, and there you go. And they can be compassionate. They can listen. It isn't all abduction. It's all about us. Yeah. They, many of them, uh, are also compassionate and will listen to the humans that they're working with. Yes, I I absolutely agree. Well, Kathy, I I mean, I'm just always so proud to work with you and and, and to have you as my friend. Also, so happy to have you on MUFON's Experience or Research Team. It's great. It's my joy and my pleasure. And uh, thank you for uh, giving us this interview for uh, Somewhere in the Skies. My pleasure. I'm really honored to uh, have with me here both Denise Stoner and Dr. George Medich from MUFON's Experiencer Research Team. 
uh, I I work with these guys, and, and, and I know them really well. So it's kind of interesting doing the interview here. But um, just two of the most interesting people that I know on the planet. So uh, hello there, George, and hello there, Denise. <laughs> hello, Earl. Hello, Earl. So how are you guys, uh, how's the, the symposium been for you so far? We, we had our, our Experiencer workshop this morning, which was really a wonderful and honored to be part of, actually. Those are always uh, a good introduction to the conference because, uh, you know, we can get experiencers in a closed environment and they can kind of let their hair down and talk about the things that are bothering them with people that are interested in, you know, in their problems and what they've experienced. So it's, it's, it's kind of a good way to set up the conference for us because that's, that's our main focus. We deal with the people uh, who have dealt with non-human entities. And uh, to get that concentration in one area makes it a lot easier to deal with. And, and once they see us face to face and they're made comfortable in that room environment and realize that it's okay to speak up, and once they see the statistics that are given and, and how many of them there are and, and the commonalities between all of them, they're ready to talk to us. Yes. Dr. George, how did you get into this? How did you become interested in well, this phenomenon? Well, I honestly when, I, don't when I retired from medicine, I, I was, you know, I was always intellectually curious. So I went back to my next love, which was astronomy, and uh, I kind of stumbled across MUFON on the internet, actually. And uh, I looked and saw what they did, and I said, you know, I've always been interested in UFOs because I always thought there was something to it. So I, I signed up and went to a meeting, uh, ran into John Ventry, who was the state director of Pennsylvania at the time, and uh, signed up. And uh, he actually put me on to Kathy Martin about the ERT. And I was, uh, wasn't was really interested in the vehicles, but more interested in who was driving them. Mm. You, know, uh, you know, lights in the sky to me gets boring pretty quick. But, uh, you know, when I'm talking to somebody who's actually been face-to-face with with a being that's not from our planet it really gets interesting for me that that's that's where the rubber hits the road for me yeah i mean it's you know the difference between hot rods and the guys that drive the hot rods you know i mean there's a life story there whereas a vehicle is a a vehicle it's a means to get somewhere well you know we've known about ufos you know for who knows how long and we really haven't made any progress in figuring out where they come from or what they're doing here i figure the next step is to maybe talk to the people that are running them and maybe they can enlighten us a little bit but there's probably a you know a multi multi-factorial reason why the different species are coming here they probably all have their own reason for being here but i'd sure like to know what it is yeah yeah denise uh i guess uh do you think that this is a, an extraterrestrial phenomena or a, a hyperdimensional or us from the future? What, what's your feelings on this? I'm not sure where they're from, but I'm an experiencer myself, and I think it's our turn to ask them questions because it appears we're not able to so far. They send us messages. They tell us what we're going to do and what what's expected of us when we're on a craft. I've seen a craft, I've seen several and been in the interior of them and taken on a tour, but I had so many questions and had no answers to give back. Mm -hmm. So 
uh, I need to know, as everybody else does. You, you had an extraordinary experience that involved, I believe it was three hours of missing time? I had three hours of missing time. My husband was with us. My parents were waiting on the other end of the uh, mountain pass. We were waiting to get across to our campsite. Um, there was a flat area called South Park, Colorado. Somehow we were taken across that expanse without any mileage showing on our car. We started out in daylight, ended up in the darkness, didn't know where we were. Um, it, it was quite frightening. We did see the lights of the craft. We did see the craft coming down to get us. It felt the car moving across the high desert. Um, we had the uh, speed of the car going normal, coming down off the pass, and um, my husband had the mileage supposedly working on the car. Nothing showed. It was as if we were not uh, paying attention, ended up on the other side of the mountains, and um, didn't know where we were at first. The odometer didn't reflect. The odometer the did not reflect anything, and my parents were getting worried. There was only one road leading to where we intended to go, so we weren't lost. Wow. Where do you guys see uh, the experience or research team going in the future? What, what's, our, what's our prime directive, our, our main goal? Well, our main goal is to help people that have encountered problems with their experience. That, that's what we do. We try to help people come to grips with what's happened to them. Uh, where that's going to take us, I really don't know. Uh, you know, uh, we're, we're just here for people who are looking for help, something you can't find in the yellow pages. You know, you can't find the, the ERT in the yellow pages. So we're here, and if somebody has a problem uh, dealing with non-human entities or experiences like that, uh, the MUFON ERT is the place to go. And how does one uh, contact the MUFON ERT? Rhetorical question. You go on the website, the MUFON website, uh, under uh, Experience or Research Team, and we have a whole uh, a whole bunch of information on, on how to do it. We have a, uh, a form that people can fill out, which eventually wakes, makes its way to me, uh, and then I distribute them, distribute that form to the members of the, of the ERT. Hmm. You know, you get yes. them. <laughs> As I was saying, it was a rhetorical question. Uh, Dr. Mevitz, you, you had a, a past in pro baseball, by the way, didn't you? Yeah, I played Major League Baseball for a little over 10 years. Fantastic. Seems like a long time ago, hmm. back when we didn't have pitch counts. <laughs> I've seen f- photographic evidence. This is a pretty good photo we saw of Dr. George at our last Zoom meeting. Uh, that's right. Yeah. Well, we need some evidence of this now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I'm honored that you guys sat down with me. And, and I'm always honored to work with you guys and be part of this wonderful, extraordinary team. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just, uh, it, it certainly changed my life and, and uh, I, I love it I love it so well we're th- glad you joined up with us Earl thank you Doc. yes absolutely <laughs> thank you Denise I'm honored to be talking with Tom Whitmore who is uh, on the board of MUFON and is field investigator from the beautiful great Texas uh, state of the union how are you doing there Tom just fine Earl and I've really been enjoying this symposium and it's great 
to be here in Southern California where it's close to the Pacific coast and things are nice and cool compared to what they're like in Texas. Have you this been time here before? Just... Oh yes. I've been here many times. Wow. Uh, we come here for symposiums. I come here uh, for board meetings from time to time right here in Irvine, California. Fantastic. So uh, I enjoy it very much. What, what all do you do as a board member member for MUFON? Just, uh... Well, the board uh, is really referred to as a business board. So we're concerned with some of the more un- mundane aspects of, of, of the organization of MUFON. Uh, we don't talk about UFOs in board meetings very much. We're, we're concerned with things like budgets, long-term planning, insurance, uh, possible contracts, you know, with media companies, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, there, it's all business. It's mostly all business-related. Keeping the wheels on the bus, yeah. more or yeah. less. Yeah, and It's and a I, big bus. Well, it's a, it's a big bus, and I, I'm proud that the board of directors for MUFON has been fairly stable over the, over the recent years. And, I, and MUFON has been around for 50 years, and, and we're proud of that, of our longevity. And I see part of, uh, part of my function, a large part of my function as being a director is, is ensuring the long-term viability of the organization. Mm, fantastic. I mean, MUFON has a long-storied history, and, and that, you know, that always touches me. I, I love the fact that I belong to this organization that's been around such a long, long time. And, and uh, you know, there's just, uh, there, 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 there aren't really any other organizations like MUFON anymore. You know, we used to have AgPro and this and that and the other thing, NICAP. But uh, MUFON is kind of, you know, and, and, and uh, well, well, what, what do you think kind of sets MUFON uh, apart from, from uh, everything else, for you anyway? Well, I think one of our virtues, Earl, is that we try to steer a middle course. We don't take uh, extreme positions one way or the other. Um, there are very conservative, scientifically oriented uh, type people in MUFON. There are also people in MUFON that have a more spiritual, more non-material orientation toward the UFO uh, phenomenon. We try to steer a middle course, and uh, we uh, not only project uh, what's going on in the UFO field by our actions as field investigators and, and compiling a database and so on and so forth, but we also reflect what's going on in the UFO field. And sometimes people are happy with what we reflect, and some, pe- some people aren't happy with everything that we reflect, but it's really a reflection of, of, of the totality of the UFO scene. Now, MUFON basically does three things. We run a network of field investigators. We collect sighting reports, and those reports go into a database. That's the first main thing that we do. Second is that we uh, produce a monthly journal. And thirdly, we put on these annual symposiums. So uh, that alone keeps us busy. <laughs> yeah. And I, I know you guys are busy. Uh, Jan, uh, I, I've hung out in the office, and, and uh, Linda Fletchner is one of my field investigators, and she works in the office. And, you know, she said he pretty much works 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. That's his usual hours. And, uh, you know, you know Jan, the biggest cuss word he'll say is darn it or golly sometimes, you know. He's, I, I like to think of him as, 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 as Richie Cunningham all grown up with, with, with a higher intellect, of course, you know, very high intellect. 
But um, well, that's that's fantastic and fascinating, Tom. Uh, and and you, you you're still working currently as an active field investigator. Uh, no, no, I haven't for a long time. Uh, but I, you know, I put my efforts into being a board member, and personally, my personal interest in the UFO field is more government related. I'm fascinated by the interaction between uh, the government and the UFO field that occurred during the 1980s, which ignited the MJ-12 affair. And I'm very interested in the history of the MJ-12 affair. Uh, at this point, I'm 66 years old, and I, I've retired from full-time employment. And I'm getting ready to move to Washington, D.C., so that I can do further research in this area. And I'm, I'm going to go visit the National Archives every day and work 9 to 5 there on my own. Oh, goodness. Sorry, <laughs> so so you, you, like, do, like, heavy FOIA requests and stuff? Is that kind of your... I, I haven't yet. My approach is going to be more directly in working in the National Archives, wow. you know, pulling documents out of the archives and studying those. Uh, and also, you know, in Washington D.C., you have the Library of Congress, and it's a hot it's a hotbed. It's of an opportunity to develop contacts as well. Fantastic. You're also a musician. I, I, yeah. I've heard, and, and a quite good one. Well, I yeah, I'm a guitarist, and, and uh, like I said earlier, you and I are exactly the same generation. We, I think, we both grew up listening to a lot of the same music. Yeah, and, <laughs> Todd and, Rundgren, we were talking about, <laughs> and, and yes, and yeah, Emerson, yeah. Lake, and Palmer, and all the all the hoity-toity guys, you know. Yeah, <laughs> and I started playing guitar when I was 14. Wow. Uh, right now, I play mostly classical guitar. Wow. I call it kind of a cl- pseudo classical style. Has certain elements of folk, certain uh, contemporary elements in, in the music, and it's original. I have at least a half an hour of original music that that I want to record in a professional studio, and then I'll send it to all my friends. Fantastic. <laughs> well, Tom, thank you so much for doing a little sit down with me, and and uh, it was just fascinating to hear about your work, and uh, and thank you again. Okay, thank you, Earl. All right. And thanks for having me on. <laughs> uh, it's, it's my pleasure. I love Somewhere in the Skies. It's honestly one of my favorite, favorite podcasts, so I'm, I'm thrilled to be doing this. I'm used to being on the, you know, answering questions usually rather than asking. So it's an honor that Ryan asked me to do this. There you go. Thanks thank a lot, you. Tom. Okay. I have Mr. Paul Davids, who's about to give, uh, he's going to be giving his presentation in just a little while. Um, How are you doing there, Paul? I'm really enjoying the conference immensely. Fantastic. Could you give me a little synopsis of of what you're going to be talking about? Well, you know, I've spent my career in Hollywood. Started on the Transformers show, the cartoons, wrote a lot of the Star Wars sequel books, and uh, best known in the UFO world for being executive producer of Showtime's Roswell, also known as Roswell, the UFO cover-up, the famous film with Kyle MacLachlan and Martin Sheen. So from the standpoint of uh, those of us who've been in the film business and have seen the explosion of interest in science fiction, aliens, flying saucers, dominating some of the most successful movies ever made, I've gone back in time to look at what were the origins of uh, these ideas about aliens and flying saucers finding their way into popular culture. So MUFON is promoting the scientific study of UFOs, evidence for aliens, 
Um, and I think sociology comes in the field of science. Mine is a sociological talk. So I'm, I'm talking about how did it come about that from a culture that had never heard of flying saucers that we have massive interest today such that uh, a movie on this theme can make billions of dollars worldwide. How did it happen? Everybody knows about it now. And it happened gradually. And it happened through movies and television and magazines and comic books and even pinball machines. And people often don't think about the fact it happened through songs and music. How many songs can you name about flying saucers? Because I can tell you there have been 50 popular songs about uh, flying saucers. Have you ever heard Jimmy Durante sing, Let's Go UFOin? No, you haven't heard it. I don't think I've heard that one. Okay, what about the rollicking men from Mars? I think I have heard that one. Merv Griffin singing the screaming memes from Planet X? I don't think I've heard that. Okay. And what about the one about the the astronaut who lands on the moon and finds 30-foot-tall women? And the name of the song is, Take Me to Your Ladder, I'll Meet Your Leader Later. Because he can't <laughs> talk to the moon women unless one. he's got a ladder. <laughs> it even came out in Italian. Of course, we've all heard of the purple people eater. Yes. But, you know, with all the movies... Old friend of mine. All the songs about the little space girl and the little space girl's father and the... Uh, Santa Claus meets the Purple People Eater. And, um, so there's that, that tradition, but above all, the tradition of science fiction. And I look at some of the early movies going into the 1950s and show how the themes in those movies echoed all the major themes of ufology that we concentrate on today. And that would include missing time, underground bases... Alien implants, genetic experiments, all of these different themes that keep recurring were present in the movies as though we were being inculcated. Mm. Do you think that was purposeful? I think that some of it was purposeful. Mm. I won't say all because some of it was done as exploitation because they could see that that there was a, 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 a market for it, but I did know uh, Robert Wise, the great director wow. of Andromeda Strain and, above all, The Day the Earth Stood Still. Wow. And that was 1951, and he confided in me that in making that movie, there were people who came from Washington who had security clearances and who had reason to know who said, Bob Wise, you don't know how close to reality your movie is. Wow, that's probably my favorite favorite film on the subject. 2001 and The Day the Earth Stood Still, those two. Well, that, that one, The Day the Earth Stood Still, 1951, same year as the Howard Hawks movie, The Thing from Another World, oh. which was like the story of Roswell transported to the Arctic. Crashed flying saucer, but it's under ice. Horrifying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it, it was. But I... Uh, My talk concentrates on the years of 1951 up to 1977 to show the development in that time period. Why 1977? Well, not only did you have Star Wars come out for the first time that year, but you had close encounters of the third kind. You had our uh, Voyager spacecraft with the plaque and the, the disc about human civilization being sent out into space for aliens to find. 
It was, uh, we were sending porn out to the. <laughs> I guess you wonder why they come and probe us. Right? I, guess, you know? I guess it's in the eyes <laughs> of the beholder. <laughs> we, we also in 1977 had the Karen Carpenter uh, song. Oh, a wonderful! Song. Calling occupants from interplanetary craft. Who do you do you know the the original band that did that? The name of them? I don't. Do you know Claw it? Too. Clatu. Oh, they called they themselves Clatu. They were named after, uh, of course, the, the day the Earth stood. Yes, Clatu was the spaceman who yeah. came with the message of warning for mankind, and Gort was his enforcer robot. Yeah, yeah. So the thing that uh, had to be said to Gort to call off his destructive powers was Clatu Barada Niktu. That's it. <laughs> How's that for a good ending point for our conversation? I love it. I love it. Well, I can't wait to hear your... I, I'm, I'm definitely going to be there in the audience. Can't wait to hear your presentation. That is Paul Davids. Also, I have to mention, I, you gave one of my very best friends her first acting job. I'm a good friend of Denise Marcel. Isn't that wonderful? Yes, she... In, in the movie about her father, Roswell. Yeah, yeah. Let me just also mention to your listeners, I've uh, produced and directed probably around 10 movies. They may not know all the titles, but they should go looking for Jesus in India, The Life After Death Project, Marilyn Monroe Declassified, Timothy Leary's Dead, Before We Say Goodbye, um, The Artist and the Shaman, The Sci-Fi Boys. It goes on and on. Fantastic. Well, thank you very, very much, Paul, and uh, thank you for uh, taking time to, uh, to talk a little bit uh, to Somewhere in the Skies. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode. Again, my special thanks to Earl Grey Anderson for making this episode possible. You can find him on Facebook, or be sure to follow the official MUFON Twitter account, at M-U-F-O-N. We're on Twitter at Somewhere Skies and Instagram at Somewhere Skies Pod. New designs in the merch store right now. Represent the show in style at tpublic.com. That's T-E-E-Public.com. And search for the Somewhere in the Skies store. Please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, your Android apps, or wherever you get the show. I'd certainly appreciate it, and it helps us gain visibility and find new listeners. Thank you in advance. Thank you also this week to the E1 Podcast Network, KGRA Radio, Rogue Planet, and my sincere thanks goes out to you for listening. I'll see you here next week, and remember, keep your feet on the ground, but never stop searching somewhere in the skies. is produced by Third Kind Productions in association with the Entertainment One Podcast Network. To learn more, visit entertainmentonepodcast.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.